episode. Um, I'm here today with a friend who I met recently who is an actor living in Northern Ireland like me. Do you want to introduce yourself, say something about yourself? Uh, hi guys, uh, my name is Arne Heckland. Uh, I'm an actor from Northern Ireland. Um, yeah, I suppose that's it really. Um, I've recently started writing with this pandemic because um, all the theatres are now sort of temporarily, hopefully dead. <laughs> yeah, I'm just sort of trying to uh, branch out into making stuff online um, and getting into the world of film really um, because I don't really have a film background. So. Yeah, we we met that. for coffee like um, a few months ago and we just got talking and I really enjoyed our conversation and I just thought like hmm, we should <laughs> we should bring you on as a guest to press record our conversation because everybody wants to listen to it or not like us That's and it. five other people um so yeah no, I when you said uh hopefully temporarily I, for, I, I initially thought like hopefully it's going to end but you obviously meant hopefully just only going to be close to the it's, it's very strange though with all the theatres. Um, yeah. How that particular form of art is so affected. Live concerts, etc. Yeah, when, when you think about it, it's like, you know, it's the difference between sort of theatre acting and, and film acting. Um, it's something I always find so difficult about trying to start off as a, as a theatre uh, actor is that you need so much to go and do a play, you need to have a space, you need to have a, you know, a crew, a director, you need to have a audience, <laughs> you know, you need to have people to show up and it is, the success of the play is based on your audience size, the audience reaction as a film. I mean, yes, all those things you do need, you need people to watch, you need people to, you know, help you with the technical side, but really all you really need um, if you're just doing bare bones, no budget, you just need a camera and yourself and some ideas and you can get going. Um, but with theatre, it's, it's a lot more difficult, I find. Just well, a self-starter. Yeah, no, absolutely, you do. It is one of the, like, the, the line of, like, what, like, signifier, signified, what is a, what is a play? Is a play only a play, you know, if you have the audience or what, when does it become a film? Because obviously, you, know, you have the things like National Theatre Live where they film it, and I'm guessing, I'm not a big yeah. theatre person at all, but I'm guessing, that kind of thing has been done during the pandemic where they film the action and broadcast it. But like, does it, is a, is a play made by the style of acting, the style of writing, the fact that it's on a stage, even though there's no audience yeah. other than the one that it's broadcast to, or is that more of a film than a play? You're right, yeah. And it's even, you know, you get even more detached forms, you know, where you get, I watched a brilliant uh, one, I forget the company name, that's really bad, I should remember them, but um, it was Love Letters From Home. Mm -hmm. And people like wrote it. It was like a Zoom call, and people wrote in um, dedications to people that they were in love with, whether it's platonic love, you know, family love, or you know, romantic love. And the actors read out the dedications and sort of riffed off of them, and then sort of played some songs that people had requested. And it was just this gorgeous because it was Zoom as well. It was actually a lot more intimate, I find, than what it would maybe be in a theater. Um, yeah. But yeah, you get uh, watching something like. Like that, I almost couldn't imagine it as a play, but I know the people who would watch it as a stage play probably couldn't imagine it on yeah. Zoom. It is interesting like how, yeah, the the result of the medium is so difficult difficult different on on you know in, in, in on the on the viewer, dependent on like the form it's taken. It is it is weird. But yeah, no, it is interesting. I've actually been inspired to 
do a film project that I wanted to do um, on a much greater scale this coming year, when we start in January, um, like a self-shot feature film based on a script that I wrote years ago and I need to actually adjust it, but literally just strip it to what can be achievable with no budget and with one camera and with my limited camera skills. Because like, you know, you, you usually you've got like, I, I know how to make film, I know how to create a narrative. Um, I have a bunch of scripts and I have one that can be made really, really simply. So it could be shit, but you know, actually <laughs> it's interesting that I would never have thought of doing that. And as I say, like yeah. the result could be crap, but um, within, because obviously next year, I don't think that much is going to change. So um, yeah, we have That's to do it. what we do. We do, we all have to sort of adapt, adapt and survive. Though I think sometimes, maybe, I mean, maybe, you know, if there's people listening, uh, they'll probably maybe disagree, but I find sometimes, you know, restrictions can be really helpful in terms yeah, of like creativity, in terms of like spawning ideas. You go, oh, okay, well, I can't do that. So you start to, mm -hmm. brain automatically starts to problem solve. Whereas I always hit the question, I get asked it all the time. And whenever I'm in interviews or whenever I'm going for auditions or whatever, People always say, if you had the unlimited budget, what, what's the project that you would do? What's the project you would do? And I just go, I, I have no idea. If I had an unlimited amount of money, flip. I'd, I'd never get anything done. I'd be spinning wheels. What about you if you had an unlimited amount of money? I mean there's always like there's an amount this is what I you know the, there's an yeah. amount of money to like cover your basic material needs in life but also in a film but like well I always work with budgets where I think um obviously mon money is just exchange value so it's a weird thing to say but like the thing I find more valuable is to me um how good a project is so I always I'm always I will always do a project and be like I'm not gonna like this three grand has made this. I'm I'm never gonna do a project again where I sacrifice myself so much and I don't get take any money and I put it all on screen and I blah, blah, blah. um although I never do, I always do the same thing where then yeah, like, yeah. 40,000, the same thing happens. It's like, right, we're gonna make 30 minutes of whatever and we're gonna get the best people we can possibly afford involved, and I'm not gonna take any money and I'm gonna like put it all in myself. I mean, I guess it's just your own value. So one doesn't, one only has oneself to blame potentially, but um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I would do. Um, I do have some like a big um, budget war film ideas. It's <laughs> like, yeah. like totally expensive, but um, most of the projects that I have in mind are very, very limited, very like mostly single location stuff. Who knows whether it's, you know, this part, this past period of time that's kind of like um, led to that um, choice. But yeah, I mean, the word isn't like creativity, creating, generating something out of nothing. So having hand, the handrails of limitation is quite mm -hmm. handy. And this actually ties into what we're going to talk about today. That's it. Yeah. Segue. <laughs> Segway. So we're going to talk about the Shawshank Redemption. I hadn't seen That's it for it. years until you, you know, you suggested we did it and I watched it this weekend. I think there's a lot in it. And I think, you know, some of the themes maybe we're going to talk about hope, institutionalization, what freedom is, um, you know, the limits of the ego, borders, all that kind of stuff. And maybe kind of like a dialectical view of it where 
you know, hope is both good and bad. <laughs> and, um, you know, limits are both good and bad, like what limits are and what freedom is. Um, yeah, I think it's actually quite an interesting film. It does, I mean, the ending, it does seem that the uh, filmmakers um, clearly, um, so, you know, put themselves on one side of this, like, what is hope question. But I think actually yeah. throughout the film is quite ambivalent. Yeah, because it's it's interesting because I remember watching an interview with them and yeah, that ending, not only is it not in the original story as in the book, but it's actually not, it wasn't even meant to be in the original film. They were meant to finish it with Red in the bus going towards the border. So you don't know. Mm -hmm. The whole point was that he had hope, but you've no idea if he made, made yeah. it. And they were just about to wrap, and then they looked and said, "No, we need we need a payoff for all this. I know. <laughs> for all this, so they gave the, the the payoff. You know. I wonder if it's interesting because you talk about the, the novel or the book yeah. not having that ending, and potentially. I mean, I personally think that um, as a filmmaker, <laughs> film mm. is the most radical art form. Uh, obviously, this is really limited because I'm not an expert in any art form other, and I'm not even an expert in the own, my own art form, but it's the one I know the best. But I think, you know, the radical potential is that film, um, i said this a gazillion times on the podcast, so excuse me for repeating myself, but the film, um, through the way that it, the narrative works, it leads us to a point of fantasy, it kind of draws us in on the level of desire and really you know, an emancipatory gesture is to undercut that desire <laughs> at the end. But obviously Hollywood movies work in a certain way with certain expectations. So it is interesting that they kind of tied it up with a bow at the end of um, something positive happening. So within the film, um, a man who's been wrongly imprisoned and his friend within prison who did commit a murder, but who eventually um, serves his time, go to this, magical coastal town in Mexico and create a new life there. Um, and this is something that, you know, kind of a, a dream or a fantasy that has kept them going, it seems, throughout the, throughout the story. Um, but yeah, at what point does the film become a block, blockbuster? Is it because of the great acting, the brilliant narrative, the excellent filmmaking, or is it because at the end it leads, leaves on a positive note? Um, I think it's I think it's the latter I think more than anything yeah yeah I think it's the fact that we get that payoff because if you think about it when you think of like uh if it did just cut with red just in the bus I think that is that's like something you would see in an indie film you know you're there <laughs> going, what happened what's going on? yeah um yeah. and we, we'd be talking about how bold his choice it was that, that yeah. cut off and we, you know we, we don't know and how the whole message was that it doesn't yeah. matter he had hope you know Exactly. Um, but for to to get that end, I think that was that was uh, you know the Hollywood end. And saying that, I do kind of love it. I uh, me and my friend um, Connor were constantly sending that la we have like a gif of that last scene yeah. where uh, Morgan Freeman just comes on the beach and that big smile, and it's just that's it's really as you said, it's uh, emancipation. It's um, I think that's kind of like the for me anyway. That was partly why I love them uh, so much. It's like I think. The film whole film for me is summed up in that scene with Andy giving Red the harmonica. Yeah. You know, it's almost like a metaphor for the film. It's, you know, the no, no matter how uh, bad society is, no matter how imprisoned you feel, 
you've always got that little escape. You've always got, and what was Andy said, that, that thing that they can't get to. Yeah. Um, I remember years ago when I did A level or yeah A level in England Camus when we came across and I wrote it down in my book because it was like oh that's brilliant it was uh, it was Camus and I think it was in the Myth of Sepsis he says this but it might have been something else but he said that that to be happy and uh, to be happy in a cruel society is a, is a form of rebellion mm-hmm. I think that was the way it said um, so yeah I, I, for me the whole film is that that little yeah. happy escape that little you know well it's interesting because talking about uh, we were talking as one does about the horrendous neoliberal hellscape that we live in currently but um (laughs) it's interesting i mean like because what i would say first just two things were sparked off when you're talking about that scene that actually you know there is a sort of fantastical element of that scene and who knows if it's real it's definitely different enough from the rest of the film to make it seem like it could just be a a dream you know but also you know it's about friendship and solidarity really it's about the bond between these two guys and that like that's basically what we have um and i think we can talk about identity politics in relation to that in a second but also so i mean of course this film make made me think of camu as well and this film that i want to make next year is based on a camu story um, it's funny, I kind of, I agree with Cameron in so many ways that there's like a, maybe a slight difference that I have with him, but the thing about, yeah, in the myth of Sisyphus, you have to imagine Sisyphus happy. So in a psychoanalytic sense, you would call the happiness that he experiences enjoyment. And the enjoyment is just enjoying what you don't have. It's appreciating just you know, it's not about striving to achieve anything. It's about finding happiness in the moment of not having, of not having. And in a sense, that's the only way, as you say, like you can, you can escape whatever hellscape you're in. But like, if we are able to enjoy what we don't have, that is really, I think, the key to undercutting capitalism. Capitalism relies on us not enjoying ourselves and not being happy and feeling dissatisfied and always finding something, finding an escape that we can. Of course though, because it's a real, not real thing, it like insists rather than exists. You can never escape it. You can only ever escape it by um, this kind of like psychic libidinal disinvestment. And that's aside from the fact that, but the thing is that I think then that, you know, because obviously the question comes like, well, what about poverty? How do we deal with that? Blah, blah, blah. But I actually think that there's a dual issue. The first is redistribution, of course, but that redistribution wouldn't be a problem if we didn't believe in the like the tyrannical satanic power of um, accumulation. And those I think that need to need the message most are those who have. Those who have need to realize that they're having is <laughs> yeah. solving their happiness and that there is a solution, which is enjoying not having aside from having a base amount of um resources to cover your basic needs you know um but it's interesting because obviously you know like the coca-cola advert is enjoy enjoy and ironically in um psycho psychoanalysis and pleasure is um basically this what might be provided by a lost object an unattainable object that you desperately want to have um, and enjoyment is that feeling of not having, but you still get something out of it. So interestingly, I think that if you just see the Coca-Cola ad as enjoy not having or enjoy your enjoyment, then it's actually 
an anti-capitalist message. Yes, yeah. secretly. It's a yes. secret, you know, Marxist spies. Uh, with <laughs> <cooler>. <laughs> <They're our cooling. laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think uh -huh. it's really what you were saying, though, about um, finding within kind of a, a toxic system, you know, your freedom. And then that kind of obviously makes me think of like in the in the film, um, we're clearly in a prison, a very unjust prison. So we can we can absolutely see that, you know, where the borders lie, who has the power, <laughs> you know, uh, what the dynamics are. And almost when we take that same thing to our society, and I'm not I'm not a big Foucault person, so I'm not like, you know, that kind of like weird panopticon thing, or whatever. But the thing about capitalism, almost in a way that's opposite to Foucault, is that like a lot of the imprisonment is invisible and is sold to us as freedom. So it's always, it's just like kind of really complicated when we try to talk about any of this really. And that often as we were saying before we press record, like things that are left wing in spirit at the beginning often can be weaponized by the market um, to actually sell us more and to actually propagate the capitalist system because <laughs> it's almost like, when we talk about these things, all of these like borders and issues are at like a really metaphysical level. So how do we even start? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Obviously, yep. you talking about you know some of your work experiences, um, where it, it is more obvious where those kind of like power dynamics lie and where the borders and limits and um, points of exploitation. But in general, as you know, Marx says all that is sacred, you know, is profaned. Everything floats into, you know, everything becomes totally ephemeral. And um, when we think we are taking care of ourselves, we are really not. <laughs> often, you know, those who are the most um, capitalistic or have the most often are the most zombified by the market and the most imprisoned by it. Yep. So it's a really complicated one. Yeah, um, and I think, I think you hit a brilliant point there and when you're sort of comparing and I don't think it's I, I think it's quite quite an accurate um thing to say comparing the that prison system in the film to uh, a capitalist society I think, it, I think that works because for me anyway I, I love the idea I love watching the wardens I think the wardens play brilliantly but and I, I love the way he's written as well but I love watching his behavior because you can almost use him as a model of the state mm -hmm. in the sense of it's this religious tyrannical leader um using this corrupt uh you know slave labor in, in within the prison to go and launder his own money and whenever Andy the one person who actually you know knows something about it in the prison even suggests that his first he, he puts him in a prison within a prison, first of all, confining him. And then after that, his next threat, um, the biggest threat that he can give him, it isn't, I'm going to kill you. His threat is, I'm going to burn all the books. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll, we'll make a fire and we'll dance around them like wild Indians. And it just made, every time I hear that, I always think of like, you know, pre-colonial America. And then you think of like, uh, you know, the likes of uh, the obvious one, Hitler burning the books. But um yeah, I, I I love. I think that's that's a good point. Um, and then the question is, how do how do you escape that? I mean, and they literally escapes that. But then the fact that he has to um, spend all his time grinding in order to to escape every day, it's the digging. 
Yes. Yeah. After he digs, he has to literally crawl and finally crawls and then he escapes. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think there's a, there's, I don't know what the message is there, you know, what well, we all have to grind like, in order to escape. But. The daily grind, obviously <laughs> you have to imagine Sisyphus happy. I guess the question yeah. is, what would happen if he, if he escaped and then he got to the beach and his, uh, you know, the town didn't exist or it was full of corrupt people or his business failed. And he, you know. he, was, he was brought into Mexican prison instead. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, that would be the worst. And this is the thing with narrative, it's always, it, you know, it's limited and it can't provide the whole scope and just for a moment it gives us a glimpse of something. But we hope mm -hmm. that it deals with it in a complex enough way that um, it allows us to think and feel about a given question. Um, yeah, no, it's interesting. And obviously you have a number of these characters. Um, Brooks, I think, is the old man who's so used to being in prison that he becomes, um, he just can't cope with the outside world. and he is utterly bereft and has to kill himself. So I guess, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, um, do you know the director Pasolini? He's quite, he's a great Italian director who was quite, um, he had quite outspoken views at a time when, um, in 1968, so he's very against the 1968 revolution, which he thought was um, kind of a bourgeois, student-led, upper-middle-class question about cultural values rather than natural um and actually and i think yeah just <clears throat> beckoned it just really what has been the result of it is it's expanded the scope of the market to um you know free love now we are sold sex you know it's just what's acceptable what's permissible to be sold back to us um rather than anything truly emancipatory but he also you know saying about how um you know out of the police and the students his his um allegiances were much more ambivalent like was he for the person who was working class and really had no choice but to do a job that was um not great and had not great values or was he on the side of the person who could afford to be a student and was dissatisfied with their lot you know so anyway but he so he had quite used this sort of i guess closer to a more like marxist leninist position and he was kind of very against hope and um there's a quote from him where he was like hope you know can be really weaponized by um politicians toxic politicians to lull the people into a false sense about where they're going and obviously i mean what can i say we saw that recently hey yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know um and a lot of the issues that are at play today are due to um more structural um failures or actions taken in response to the wars, uh 2008 things like that <laughs> anyway one you know it's but, but it goes to show the power of hope though you know like how for so long it was so um you one couldn't say anything about that um but yeah no so it, it is it's always I guess there's also a question of what hope is. Is it just a sort of panglossy and like everything's going to be fine? Or could we say that hope is something more, um, more rational and reasonable and more like this thing, joy? Joy is just finding happiness in the normal moments. Um, and I think this is the thing because all of this, even though we're talking about like a more kind of like philosophical question or like a um, question of subjectivity and your orientation to the world, like, Obviously, the world can't change without material change, but I think one has to be in the right place. What has to come from the right perspective for it to like have yeah. change. 
and I think you have this to is like, believe in change in order to enact it, you know. Yeah, and you have to. Mm -hmm. I think it has to come from like a universalist perspective of um, this is for us. Obviously, capitalism, you know, relies on someone having more than another person, and, and another person being exploited for someone else's gain. But also, this idea that all we really have is a brokenness, and so I think universalism, without the question of brokenness, without this idea that like we share what we don't share, you know, we all have this sort of essential trauma of being a human being that we can't that accumulation we use as a fantasy to cover over but that doesn't work um so unless we can kind of find joy in that shared brokenness and you know i think this is interesting that all these prisoners you know they share the fact that they might have um been in prison due to a great injustice or that they did something wrong and they do deserve to be there but they all come together over this shared position of a lacking subject who is not in control of their own life but yeah that's it and i think they all feel that in that moment where the the universalism when that uh music is played yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, for that moment all the men shawshank were free and i think they all sort of realize i think it's come back to that idea that uh maybe i don't know if it's, it's true enough but maybe that hope that andy feels maybe that is what it is to be human maybe that that hope is is human nature and it is uh both natural and good and it's only read through his you know natural living through the system if we're using it as a metaphor for capitalism it's only through life in that system that he's actually been uh grinded down or as marx would say alienated he's been alienated from himself uh yes. so he loses that uh, and then the end of the spectrum then is someone like brooks someone who you know um has come out the other end of the uh, the system only to realize that uh, you know you could almost use the modern the modern cars that could be automation you know um, uh, that that the workers alienated from their work and that yeah they're essentially rendered useless by uh, by this machinery that's just constantly updating itself maybe um, I don't know. What do you think? It's interesting. Yeah, like I think um, one of the the things that Brooks found so difficult when he leaves prison is this: is this old guy who's been in there for however since it was nineteen oh five, and it's nineteen sixty something by the time he leaves, and he yep. says that the pace of life, the speed of the world, like he can't deal with it. All these cars and whatever. And they, I saw this the other day. I just thought this was really interesting. Obviously the Titanic. We're in Belfast, you know, but the Titanic is it. Mm -hmm. Of course. Yeah, it's the claim to fame is has this um real power, um, like a psychic power it really means something to a lot of people. And I was like, ask why out of all of the um the you know, the things, the tragedies that happen, why does it have this compelling thing for us? And I think it's because it's like this it's this like mirror or this object that contains within it all these multiple contradictions of a society in change. And I think it is a moment where we have the kind of the, the, the last hurrah of like um, clearly defined class dynamics, because obviously now that, that in, within neoliberalism, the lie is that anybody can change their class, but like we have this clearly defined class dynamics. It was also- Quite literally, quite levels. Literally, absolutely, and who gets to survive and who doesn't. We have this hubris of, um, you know, believing that this ship is unsinkable. We have the fact that it's like, 
you know, all these wealthy people, people like John Jacob Astor, who basically are cast out into this like black, icy, ebony waters where they will die within 20 minutes. But it's like, you know, the speed they've got to get to New York on time. And um, this the greatest ship ever built. And it's really like, you know, and it's machinery over man. I mean, like, that's almost like a, a question that comes up in the horror genre a lot. It's like, where does a human start? Where does something else start? Like, you know, what, what is a human? What's a machine, you know? And so all these things caught in this moment. But I actually think the real thing is it's the start of neoliberalism. For me, neoliberalism starts in the 1910s, basically the Treaty of Versailles. And the last moment of the kind of previous world order is World War One, And obviously this is just before that. And so there's this guy, I don't know why I was looking up the, um, the Titanic the other night, in the middle of the night, and um, I was looking up, you know, the stories of the people who had, um, tended to be like the men, the first class men who'd been left behind and those who survived, you know, they couldn't get into a boat, but how did they survive? And there was one guy who was the son of this wealthy family. And he, um, he wrote sort of, uh, you know, his reflections on, on that experience. And he said this, and I just think it's like really interesting about this question of neoliberalism, the um, releasing of this beast with kind of perpetual growth and these questions of freedoms and the kind of essential horror of what it is to be an alienated subject under this form of capitalism. And he said, so in his privately published 1940 account of the sinking, Thayer recalled what life was like before the Titanic sank. And he says, there was peace and the world had an even tenor to its way. Nothing was revealed in the morning, the trend of which was not known the night before. It seemed to me that the disaster about to occur was the event that not only made the world rub its eyes and awake, but woke it with a start, keeping it moving at a rapidly accelerating pace ever since, with less and less peace, satisfaction and happiness. To my mind, the world of today awoke on April the 15th, 1912. That's crazy. I think think it's so insightful. I think that's why we are so compelled by it. It's like that, that moment unleashed something, or it was you know, maybe the idea was that, oh, this, we, we were, um, you know, technologically advancing. Obviously capitalism in the 19th century had advanced a huge amount and there was a huge amount of suffering, but it was going in the right direction. But there was something about that. And psychoanalytically speaking, it's like we get our satisfaction and our dissatisfaction and capitalism relies on our dissatisfaction. So if capitalism worked, it wouldn't keep propagating itself because we'd get it and we'd be satisfied (laughs) it only works because it doesn't work and maybe there's something essentially within that moment that's captivating where we have this great boat and we are going to be you know the masters of the seas and we're going to get to new york in x amount of time and look we've created this great thing nothing can stop us and then this ridiculous thing happens and it fails and it's like that that is what capitalism is you know it's this yeah growth 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 for nothing other than our own dissatisfaction our own inability as you say to find those moments of happiness it relies on failure it's funny this is probably me cliche saying this but it's funny as you were reading that quote the for me it just made me immediately think in terms of world-changing event and before and after it Mm -hmm. immediately made me think of 9-11 immediately in the sense of, for me, that was when, I mean, I was only eight, you know, but uh, after it, that was when America was perpetually at a state of war, mm-hmm. you know, before, and 
I mean, you could argue, you know, it was before, but I mean, that was when the war on terror began. Mm -hmm. Airports changed. As we know it, it for me, anyway, to my knowledge, it's, it's consistently been a case of like war being outsourced and war being essentially an industry ever since then. I mean, I know it had before, but that was the moment in which it became fully yeah. code, almost codified into into our side is and no it's normal to be perpetually at war or, or maybe legitimized you know yeah because obviously you yeah. have ah, legitimized that yeah. yeah. this is the thing it's like you always yeah. wonder what an effect of your actions would be and could those al-qaeda terrorists who uh performed that act of terrorism like could they have known what their what were their intentions and maybe yeah it was to draw america in in some way or to 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 rile the, the beast in some way but yeah i think it is and this is what worries me about covid i worry that covid can be a legitimation mechanism rather than the opportunity for something emancipatory like you know a form of universal healthcare, whatever it looks like you know um or um yeah this understanding that we're you know obviously in a technological age we forget how fallible we are as a species um, and how close to the edge we always are. Um, and, you know, yeah. our, our own death, like we, we, we forget our mortality. But I worry that it can be a legitimation mechanism for um, forms of tracking that already exist in, I would argue, a more quote-unquote advanced capitalist state, which is China. I don't think China is remotely communist at all. We were talking just before you recorded about how when a when a um a country claims a political orientation within its name, you know it's the precise opposite, Democratic Republic of the Congo, for example. Um but yeah, I worry that it's going to be a legitimation mechanism for tracking for things like um the responsabilization in terms of um climate change. And this is another you know responsabilization of various aspects of our own morality like social credit are we a good person who did this thing what blacklist can we put this person on i think it's, i'm really worried about that but obviously the thing is it's but it's this is where ideology functions because ideology functions on like a double level well on one level you can say like absolutely we need to be able to track people to prevent the spread of the virus and that's an absolutely reasonable thing to say but then to weaponize something on the level of ideology where you transform society for the benefit of tech corporations is most concerning. <laughs> and then it almost becomes a thing that the, the remedy to the, to the event or to the disaster or whatever, the, the remedy to it almost becomes the, not necessarily the cause, but the remedy becomes normal and it becomes the, yeah, it becomes solidified. Yeah, um, to even bring it back to to the prison, you know, talking yeah. about uh, uh, Shawshank, it's the the idea that the the prison officers. Uh, I mean, it's a brilliant, you know, thinking about events in that film. One of the most starkest ones is when the captain, the uh, prison captain, he kills the prisoner at mm -hmm. the very very start. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's that I I used to work as a, a tour guide in the Crumb Road Jail, so mm -hmm. a lot of people. It's partly why it started to, me and my friend Connor, we were both working there and we started to appreciate the film more, having talked to people, because you had a lot of people who come over from America, people who come over from uh, South Africa, both prison officers and prisoners. 
uh, would come in to just see what the, what prisons were like in our country and, and talk about it. And it's funny because a lot of people sort of, you would see the transformation in them in that they would see prison as a necessity mm-hmm. against almost a, a barrier against the brutality of, of humans, of, of people, you know, people, if, if we don't treat prisoners this harshly, if we're not this uh, brutal with them, then uh, they will be that brutal with us. They, they will take advantage of these nerdy wells of society. But then after you'd given the tour and talked about the brutality of the prison, most people had actually changed their minds and it almost became that thing of, you know, these people, and maybe that's the thing with prisons, is that people, once they get brought through the, the system, the prison yeah. system, then they're forever going to be, you mm-hmm. know, is that they call them gladiator schools in America. Mm-hmm. They send the young, uh, young children off to uh, like some juvie. And they actually learn how to become criminals because of how harsh the system is there. And once they come out, they're forever changed. Um, Absolutely. And is it, I mean, that's exactly, that's an ideological function where there's an absolute belief in one way of functioning. The prison is this because, you know, we need to, we need to, and, you know, as you say, it's interesting, these legitimation mechanisms, like how, and in America, you're talking about the war on terror. There's always like a war on something, but there's like a war on drugs. And I think that was a time when, you know, this really egregious form of, um, you know, the carceral state in America was legitimized. And I guess, you know, this is the thing, this is why I really like having conversations like this and really why I love drama because drama is so dialectic. It like presents things from a, like a multiplicitous perspective and almost like a left wing um, act is to problematize things. And but even the things like problematizing can become a right wing thing as well. If like it becomes like anything, it's like not the what, it's the how. It's like anything can become absolutist, you know. So it's just, yeah, it's this question of always just from the position of openness to the fact that you could be wrong. And I guess this is, you know, this is how like science advances. Obviously you have scientism and then the, like the scientific method where you go into an experiment and it's an experiment because you don't know what the outcome's going to be. And it's not sci- the scientific method if it's anything else. But then scientism is a sort of like blind faith in like we know this to be true and it's absolutely true. So I guess this is where, you know, um, things that we were talking about just before we press record that like maybe were originally intended to be a left-wing thing can then become weaponized and become a border and a limit and a sort of like imprisoning ideology again you know um you know i this is not to say like i absolutely believe in like truth and facts and science and everything but it's this when something this blind faith in um a perspective and an absolute inability to think about it in any other way than the one that we are told to believe and i think you know 20 years ago or so that war you know what what happens in america often you know the whole english-speaking world becomes a thing but you know there's this you know an ideological position belief in the castle system also this belief that you know um especially in the 90s and noughties pre-crash hard work leads to financial success and those who have money deserve it in some way and obviously our material reality is speaking of truth that might be something different um but yeah i think though that as you say humans are fallible and we always need these crutches and maybe you know i'm not i I do think that hope is a good thing but i think it's like a complex thing that hope can become something Mm -hmm. like that or that now there has become a certain um, within certain aspects of society, a certain 
weaponized ideology that is preventing us from even being able to criticize or um, question systems of the, the material reality of our world today. And I think it's quite, I don't think it's, I don't think there's a great hand of the market directing it, but I think it, it's a clever way um, yeah. that uh, we are becoming imprisoned by a certain form of um, material economy. And the ideological justifications that have emerged are very clever because they can't be criticized because they are deemed to be so ethical. If that makes sense, you might know what I'm talking about. But you know, we, we no, yeah, yeah. Especially uh, when they're directed at individuals, you know, you uh, rather than it being a systemic issue. I think you know what we were talking about before record, record um, about left wing arguments being sort of propagated and hijacked by the right wing and um, placed for more nefarious means and and the 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 means by which someone attempts to right a problem, right or wrong, or to set themselves free actually ends up coming to prison. And I know that sounds quite sort of animal farm, but um, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 quite, it's quite true. Um, and I think that one of the problems with that is, or one of the causes of that even, is making a problem individual as opposed to making it systemic, you know? Absolutely. Um, and it's maybe, again, to bring it back to Shawshank, maybe the problem with that is, that the warden character, it's it, it's the movie almost blames his personality as opposed to blaming the fact that he is a warden. Um, well, this is the thing that maybe yeah. we could have a more woke warden, you know. Um, it's like no. <laughs> I know, I know, but that's the thing. Cause, I mean, obviously, with a certain election that has just happened. Um, yeah. Well, it's, it, funny enough, I mean, this has been the case for a number of years, but there has been um, like the heads of the CIA and whatever, you know, the four, five greatest uh, um, arms dealer companies, four of them, I don't know, and this is suddenly true last year, um, women, you know, this idea that, oh, well, women are more ethical or women and, you know, I mean, I don't know, like a less feminist message, if you call yourself a feminist, than saying that women are these particular special angelic beings and therefore not really humans, <laughs> you know. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the, but obviously within drama, it's, you have to present a certain thing, you have a limited amount of time, you have to do it in a certain way. So often we symbolize um, this toxic power of a greater thing with a, just a personality type you know, like the warden is, but, but yeah, who knows? I mean, does he have a choice? He needs to bring food home at the end of the day. He will lose his job otherwise. Da, 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 da. Um, but I think, yeah, the question now is it's becoming so pervasive and uh, our own, you know, the, this question of free speech obviously is, a, is an issue. Um, and it's difficult because what happens often is a certain side takes the side of free speech and a side that a lot of people might find distasteful. But then on the other side, the question, the like um, arguments against free speech or who's taking the side against free speech is kind of um, very problematic as well. So it's like, where, where do we even, you know, the fact being as well, therefore, that, you know, our own inner thoughts, our own, I don't know if you've had this thought, Erin, of like, when you're messaging on a, on a service owned by Facebook or something, you're like, say something that might be unwoke or you know, if it got out that, or taken out of context, and this is a private message, because obviously nothing's private anymore. <laughs> you know, like one day I sometimes think like, in 20 years, 
could this all be da 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 da? And you know, it's terrible that we even have to worry about that. No, yeah, uh, completely. Um, I think even even in Northern Ireland, we have that whole sort of you know slagging culture, which isn't particular to Northern <laughs> Ireland, but we do have it, you know. And I think sometimes some of my friends, the, the things we say to each other. Yeah. If again, if it was taken out of context, if it was placed into, you could very easily create some wanted posters. You could very easily create this man is, but then you know that, that kind of, not to use that because I hate when people you know use slogans too much. But that that uh, thing that people say that the post, what is it, the post truth age? A lot of people were saying when uh, Trump was back in two thousand and sixteen. But there is an element of that that I just think is sometimes you can just. You look at it and you just go, do words mean anything anymore? What, mm-hmm. what is, what is, you know, it's just become a complete simulacrum of its, of its, of its, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything anymore. Yeah, it's just, absolutely. it's. Just, but I think this is something that, that Mark's really predicted. And I think sometimes people on the, again, when I say the word left now, I don't even think I can say it because I don't think it means what we maybe intend it to mean because often in contemporary yeah, society, we're talking about liberals maybe um so so there's this question of things like fam- destruction of the family or that we can beckon in a utopia if we change sort of cultural things but actually there's a marx quote i think it's from the communist manifesto where he says that um, wherever the bourgeois is in the ascendancy they will destroy the patriarchy so for him the patriarchy isn't um res- like a, a really a thing other than it's a form that might have existed in the past pre capitalism and that capitalism is the thing that destroys it so you know these breaking down of things leads to just a greater expansion of the market but i do think though that where you know we're talking about okay some some of these characters within the film are happier in the institutions it's like we need certain you know and also in a psychoanalytic sense we need an ego we need ego order otherwise we're a vegetable like what what changes us from animals is that we have a self and a sense of self and an ego that we can, you know, that has a certain limit so we can navigate the world. And that on the other side of that is just psychosis, basically. Um, <laughs> but the, all of this breaking down of anything, you know, whilst there are things that need to be broken down because they're bad, it can just lead to an essential feeling of precariousness. If we can't trust language anymore, if we don't have a family anymore, if we do, and that's not to say that everybody's family is good. I'm sure loads of people have a really shit family or experience abuse within family, would rather not be a member of a family, especially if they have, you know, certain, you know, um, orientations or something, let's just say, or they were born in a very um, conservative place. But all of this serves to destabilize us and make us feel very precarious. And precarity leads to the belief that something else out there can make us feel better, which is exactly mm. what capitalism wants. Well, yeah, what's quote exactly. unquote, you know? So, yeah, exactly. It's almost like the the in, uh, you know the inroad into it and it's in that vulnerability, yeah. uh, that that fear. Um, yeah, that's that's where it uh, it's it's taken advantage of and even you know commodified as well. I think about it all the time that. Um, I think one of the most nefarious things is uh, the, the targeted ads they'll get in social media um, because they obviously they read they're probably even you know picking up keywords in this podcast right now but they read you know your chats your google and it's that kind of thing that even even existential angst and despair 
that is marketed to now. You can go and buy books. You can go and you know buy audio books. You you can go on a on a retreat. It's all it's all commodity. It's yeah, there's a, there's a feeling of inevitability to it, really. <laughs> Absolutely, and this is the thing; it always you know? looks different. And I think this is the thing yeah. that, like, the what and the how, like, in a sense, the what doesn't matter. It's it's about dynamics. Yeah. It's about uh, orientations. It's about like deeper kind of, as you say, existential metaphysical dynamics at play. This is, you know, obviously, I think Marx is so great. Or, I mean, I think there is an issue where the utopian question comes in, but um, I think he's a Hegelian and he maybe could be a little bit more Hegelian, but the thing is that like, we sometimes, and this marketing convinces us that this time it's going to be different. <laughs> yeah. But maybe we'll come to a point where we realize it just won't be and this, the emperor has new clothes. But um, it's interesting as well, because to me, World War II was the first war of neoliberalism. And basically, you know, capitalism is at its most intense, at a point where, um, in a sense, it's closest to its failure, because there's a dialectic to it. You know, obviously Marx is like, well, the, you have to pay the workers enough, otherwise they can't purchase the products created by the um, producers, you know, so they're out of business. So obviously, you know, Wall Street crash, blah, 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 and especially what was happening in Germany in the 20 years that led up to World War II. Like, the intense, success of capitalism and therefore failure at taking care of the people in society created world war ii and then on the other side of it you have this intense like confrontation with that failure and then you have something on the other side that's more equitable <laughs> so it just yeah it's inter interesting because you have the you have the post-war uh, i remember in uni we did a lot of like miller uh, plays um not the crucible, but he had like a, a number of other ones that were set. He did a lot about uh, post-war America and and the rush in uh, post-World War II America, and obviously that would ties in what you're saying. That surplus then leads on to the. I wonder if that's connected then to the the the, the moment of crisis and the moment of change from from the late fifties, early sixties yeah. onwards. Yeah. All that that a complete moment of change in America. Um, that was universal. That was, you know, obviously uh, across America and really the world. Because um, a lot happened. I, anytime me and my friends talk about, you know, the sixties and seventies, so much happened globally in that time. We go, what happened in those in those decades? Why, why was you know Northern Ireland doing this, and then South yeah. Africa was doing that, and America was doing that? Then you think, well, yeah, well, post World War Two, the rush, the surplus. And that leads on to the moment of change, as you say. Yeah. It is also interesting, the thing that's kind of scary about human beings is the um, capacity to self-sabotage. And we don't want to, almost the, we don't want to enjoy, you know, you're saying this, enjoying what we don't have. Um, mm -hmm. Almost it can sometimes be too traumatic to do that or to accept that you have what you already want. Um, because there's, there's something in this pursuit that generates a dissatisfaction that's more satisfying than <laughs> like just acceptance. And one does always wonder whether we get to points where things are just calm and okay, where we have to create something. As you say, this perpetual, you know, it's a very, it's a very sort of like fascistic thing, this perpetual war. Obviously in the Third Reich, it was the A Thousand Year War. It's this something that Hitler kind of quote unquote understood was that in order to have 
a cohesive quote unquote society, you have to have a scapegoat and outsider, but some some threat, you know, that like makes us, you know, so that threat to, you know, whether it's communism or terrorism to America allows people to get a sense of um, security within what they have. At least this is something that's very funny that Trump played a lot, um, which goes, you know, um, I'm proud to be American because at least I know I'm free. I think it's quite a funny like phrase because it's like very, um, it's very catchy song actually, but it's like, it gives you that like warm fuzzy feeling that it's only ideology can provide. But it's actually a bit of a pathetic yeah. phrase because it's like, I like it because at least, you know, <laughs> you have this yeah, exactly. illusion of freedom, the land of the free when actually, I mean, under capitalism, who is really free? Mm. Um, but you know, this, the, there always has to be this enemy to make it seem like, the freedom's under threat because it's only valuable if it might be taken away. And I think this is where the Russiagate stuff obviously came from, this idea that the Russians are tampering with our whatever. The Russians, the Russians, you know, <laughs> these like villainous figures. So yeah, I guess the thing is, it's getting to that place where we don't need that threat in order to enjoy what we have. It's just to enjoy it. Um, and I wonder if that threat then is almost a safeguard against people weaponizing or using hope to enact change for the better absolutely because in order to hope you have to believe in change and we we're talking earlier about you know uh capitalism and uh, the economy taking advantage of precariousness of instability of vulnerability and to hope for something yeah bring it back to the movie and is to uh, it's it's a vulnerable thing and i think that's why red you know doesn't like it in the movie but it's why yeah. we as well because the hope is yeah it is vulnerable because ultimately you yeah. are open to potential to change yeah. or not uh, change you're open to potential for failure yeah and i think almost as a safeguard against that hope being used for mm -hmm. systemic change mm -hmm. that precariousness that you feel when you hope mm -hmm. that can be commodified and that can absolutely. be absolutely anything yeah anything becomes valuable if it might be taken away and so yeah it's just this question and you're absolutely right about something that's commodifiable or something that is actually real and the question is like what is that dynamic that makes something open to be commodified and something that just is and i think maybe maybe we should like tie up the conversation with this you know this this idea about what hope is and there's like it's a multiplicitous word it's also an you know is an ambivalent word where in Pasolini's words it can be weaponized if it's this idea that there's something better and aside from material conditions being improved to just generally improve people's lives it can transcendentally make us better and cover up the void that we all fill within ourselves but if we think of hope as just like I'm okay the hope is that something can change but not transforming this metaphysical gap within me but transforming society for the better then maybe that's a good hope and that we should be open to the future but the question is with hope with anything it's not simple and if a certain dynamic is at play and i think i think that dynamic is when we aren't entered into something from a universalist perspective around a shared lack that makes us human then it can be commodified and if it is a genuinely 
emancipatory thing, it'll always be about each other and each other unified around an acceptance of the lack. Yeah. <laughs> Which is quite, it's quite, I don't know, it's one of those things where it's like a bit of a mouthful and I could be wrong. <laughs> no, I, I think it's, it's whether you view hope as a noun or a verb. You know, mm -hmm. if you view hope as a noun, you view it as the static thing that hopefully will, hopefully, uh, that will <laughs> hopefully come to you and inspire you. And, you know, if it's taken away from you, and maybe that's maybe a, a Marxist thing that, you know, the, the working class must emancipate themselves. It's never going to come. Um, the answer is never going to come for them. They must do it themselves. Mm -hmm. um, the hope is to use it as to as to use it as a verb, moment to moment, day to day, yeah. despite the material world around you, or maybe Absolutely. because of it. It's interesting. Just one last thing that you said about the working class emancipating themselves. I think part of the problem with the quote unquote left, the like media left, or whatever we're talking about, the sort of PR wing for tech potentially, is that is it really coming from the working class? Like when we look at the oh, media, yeah. what for where you know where is it coming from if it's a bourgeois question uh, and it, those things tend to be about cultural concerns and cultural values where a certain sector of society is distinguished from the rest from those who um are paid less through a question of values and morals it's not emancipatory it's a cultural question about distinguishing a class Maybe that's controversial to say, but I think that's what it is. And if we look at revolutions in, in um, you know, often they, they start with a revolt of the elites. The, um, three, um, the uh, French Revolution, obviously, an obvious example. But yeah, it gets to a point where even the, even the bourgeoisie is pissed. <laughs> you know? But the question is, though, um, when we look at these movements, who is it? I always think qui bono. Isn't that what like detectives <laughs> say? Like, yeah, yeah, that's it. Like, You're right, though. But I Who's think that's it? something that we need to. And you, this is the thing to go beyond the visible, you know, the, sig the signifier to what really lies beneath. And this is maybe you know we see the prison in the film. It's stripped bound, stripped down, and we can see the dynamics at play. We can see who the prison guards are. We can see who the prisoners are. And in some ways it's, you know, it's obviously very clear. And when we move it to the outside, the dynamics are there, but it's very complicated and it's sort of kaleidoscopic. And so, yeah, when, when we look at these things and we see, we use this word political, we have to wonder like, what is political and what's just a cultural question? And who, um, who is this for? Mm -hmm. Whether it's life and death or whether it's just an academic exercise. Yeah. It always reminds me of the uh, whenever I worked in the Cromogeal, I would often be like being or mopping on. There was a massive uh, Nelson Mandela quote on one of the posters and said, um, "If you want to, if you want to know anything about uh, how a country treats, no, if you ever want to know anything about a country, go and visit its prisons." Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that sort of sums up what you were saying there about it being a more distilled or boiled down version. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What what the dynamic. And that's very true, actually. Yeah, what, what's, it, what's it like in America, for example, the land of the Yeah. Free. And but also that, um, you know, the capitalist model always relies on a proletariat 
it relies on people who have nothing and will not have anything on on an outsider like all system all totalizing and it's funny because i think the, even the word universalist i think sometimes gets weaponized um in the wrong way um but i think a totalizing system a system that operates with everything there's a scapegoat on the outside and we could say that the prison system you know and um obviously we looked at what happened in the summer in america and i think sometimes um the real question of what that represented gets missed in favor of something else like what the real question is of why the police are so brutal in america and why people have to have guns and everything uh, and then for why in response to the guns the police have to be um armed and the question is like property you know <laughs> but uh, the not that i'm against property at all you know i think i think you know we live in a system and people have property and that's that's the way it is but um so I can say that what's the train of thought? This was too long a time. Um, <laughs> I've lost it too. Um, we were talking about uh, so police. Yeah, who knows? Maybe they can get the gist of it. Yeah, there's always somebody excluded. Absolutely. So in um, when I think Theodore Adorno called uh, the Nazi Party a universalist party, well, it wasn't because the Jews are excluded. The gays or gypsies and black people so in order for something to actually be universalist we have to have the scapegoat within ourselves and i think that scapegoat is a gap that can't be commodified that can't be filled over and i think that this is where your point early on comes in that that's joy that's yeah. it yeah and it has to be as Andy says something they can't get to yeah absolutely absolutely that's it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, we've come full circle. Um, so, cut cut it, we nailed it there. <laughs> this always happens. And also, I think, you, as you realise, we hardly ever talk about the film. Although the film, I just think film is so, again, talking about how complicated things are, film does many things, but one thing that like drama does is it presents a theme with not one perspective, but many. Oh, yeah. And that's a springboard for a discussion because <laughs> you could talk yeah. about it endlessly, infinitely. Yeah, it's, it's the film I, my brother once asked me the question. Um, he loves asking me really mad hypothetical questions, but he once asked me, he said, if you, if you were visited by aliens and they'd never had human contact before and they could speak English, but they have no reference to human culture or civilization, what is the one film that you would show them to sort of um, showcase humanity and I always say Shawshank for the reasons we just discussed. Yeah that's really interesting. What's, what will what be yours? Do you know what not because it's my favourite film but because I think it's extremely insightful about human subjectivity arrival. Um, oh yeah that's a brilliant one. Write it but like I just think that guy is just the most incredible filmmaker. Yeah. substance over style even though his style is like great you know i think there's yeah. a little style over substance but i think he's amazing but i think that's a, that was such an amazing an amazing yeah piece of work but yeah it's not my favorite film at all you know but i just think it's very succinct oh also, a ghost story oh my god i honestly think one of the best films ever made and incredibly well executed in terms of narrative never seen it a ghost story is that made by? for a hundred thousand dollars absolutely incredible. Seen it. really recommend 
Yeah. I'll have to look it up. Uh, anyway, well, thanks again. No, once thank again you for listening, and thanks for coming on. And until next time.